Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. For months, we have keenly anticipated today's discussion of the Supreme Court featuring conservative constitutional scholar Ed Whalen of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and UCI law professor Rick Hassan, who is of a somewhat more liberal persuasion. Ed and Rick, Ed and Rick actually met years ago when they, after their second year of law school when they were both summer associates. He was an actual associate. I was just the summer Oh, I'm associate. sorry. All right. Pardon me. An important distinction. No, no, no offense intended. He had to try to please me back then. <laughs> at, a, at a very prestigious Los Angeles law firm. Um, both did very well in law school. Rick at UCLA and Ed at Harvard. Both clerked for Ninth Circuit judges. Ed then moved on to clerk for Justice Scalia during the monumental 1991-1992 term when there were a number of major decisions, including Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a major uh, case about reproductive rights. Um, I had hoped at one point that I might be able to uh, cajole Ed into uh, telling some personal stories about um, Justice Scalia, with whom he was uh, quite close. Um, he has uh, told me, however, that the level of his grief is so intense that he would like not to do that today, and I'm going to respect his wishes. Nonetheless, nonetheless, Justice Scalia's death has, if anything, amplified the importance of today's discussion. At the very least, the country now faces the prospect that this Supreme Court term will conclude with only eight justices, meaning that some of the most high-profile cases may be unresolved as a result of a four-to-four vote and may have to be reheard next term. In addition, it appears at the moment uh, that it could be many months before the Senate approves a replacement for Justice Scalia because the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, has said that um, President Obama should leave this uh, choice to the next president. President Obama has said he will uh, put forth a nominee in due course, but if, in fact, the Republicans vote as a block, they certainly have the ability to uh, halt any nominee that he sends up. Um, whenever a successor is chosen, there seems to be little doubt that one new justice can have a big impact. Just cite a few examples. Think about what happened when Fred Vinson left the court and Earl Warren replaced him. Lewis Powell replaced Hugo Black, Clarence Thomas replaced Thurgood Marshall, Samuel Alito replaced Sandra Day O'Connor. The New York Times Supreme Court correspondent Adam Liptak said this choice may affect this country for at least the next three decades. Over the next hour or so, we're going to be discussing many topics. Several of them are controversial. We will leave time for some questions. Ed, let's start with one of the immediate issues at hand. Should the president nominate a successor to Justice Scalia, or should he let a successor do so? And please tell us if your answer is based on the Constitution or some other source of authority. Well, look, under the Constitution, it's, it's crystal clear that the president has the power to nominate a Supreme Court justice anytime there is a vacancy or even a prospective vacancy. That's, no one seriously contests that. Uh, I discovered today some interesting advice that uh, Joe Biden uh, gave on the Senate floor back in June of 1992. He said back then that if a Supreme Court vacancy were to arise, that President uh, Bush, Bush 41 uh, it was back then, should follow what he called the uh, majority of his predecessors 
and decline to uh, nominate a president before Election Day, and that if President Bush were to go ahead and nominate uh, someone before Election Day, the Senate Judiciary Committee should, I think Senator Biden put it, should seriously consider not holding a, a, a hearing before uh, uh, Election Day. Since that power lay entirely in his hands, I think we can read that should seriously consider as a much stronger statement than that. Uh, likewise, uh, in uh, July 2007, Senator Schumer made uh, a very similar statement, um, again, 2007, about the, the, the remaining 18 months. Look, the bottom line here is that what we're seeing is um, a clash of politics that the Constitution both allows and encourages. This is a clash that, that uh, arises now, just as it threatened to arise in 1992 and in 2007, 2008, Precisely when you have the, the configuration of a president of one party making a nomination to a Senate controlled by the opposite party. We haven't seen uh, a nomination made in such circumstances since um, uh, Justice Thomas's nomination uh, in uh, 1991. And when you add to that that we have an election year, uh, you know, very intense races on both sides, uh, Scalia's seat, the threat, the th threat of transforming the court for a generation, I'll simply say it is no surprise that the politics of this are exactly what they are. And I fully support Senator McConnell's uh, uh, decision to hold off on confirming, uh, uh, taking any action on any nominee, just treating them as dead on arrival um, until after this election, and teeing up for the American people in a way that's it's, it's crystallized, in a way that it hasn't been, I'm not sure it's ever been before, um, exactly um, uh, who ought to make uh, this decision. Rick, what do you think? Uh, before I answer that, let me just thank Ed for coming. We had planned this months ago, and obviously circumstances have changed, and there's probably more people in this room and watching uh, than would have been uh, before uh, Justice Scalia's death. But um, these are issues that we're going to face, um, not once, but potentially four times in the next president's term. There are. Uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg will be 84 when the next president is sworn in. Uh, Justice um, Kennedy, Justice Breyer, both of them be coming up to 80 years old. And so the chances that we're going to see more nominations. So, so I just, just in terms of the framing, I think this is one of a series of battles that we're going to see politically. Um, I think when it comes to the question of whether there should be a hearing uh, for a nominee, whether the president should nominate someone, whether the whether there should be a vote, uh, that there's a lot of situational ethics. Uh, I think if, uh, if it were, I agree that if it were Bush and a Democratic Senate, we'd be hearing the exact opposite arguments made by both sides. And, I, you know, uh, and different historical precedents pointed to uh, than we have now. And so I don't think either side has a monopoly on uh, virtue in this area or uh, on uh, purity of thought. Uh, what I would say is, uh, and this is probably a good first question because I think I agree with Ed, that uh, uh, this is a political decision. And certainly the president should nominate someone, and then uh, it's up to the Senate. The, the president has a responsibility to nominate Supreme Court justices, uh, and then it's up to the Senate to decide whether or not to confirm. And that choice, I think, is ultimately going to be a political decision made by the Senate. And I think what's going to determine that is not how Abe Fortas was treated in the 1960s, but whether uh, Pat Toomey 
and uh, uh, Ron Johnson and other senators are going to have a hard time getting reelected in swing states. If they are, and Mitch McConnell sees there's a chance of losing the control of the Senate over this issue, I think it's much more likely that there will at least be a vote than if it looks like the issue is playing well in the public. And so I think it's going to be a, a political decision. I think that it rightly should be. There's so, many, there's so much at stake here. And, and uh, uh, certainly there's no reason for the president to wait to the next election. But what the Senate does is going to be a political choice. Rick, I'd like to continue with you for a second. Now, tell us one case, just pick one in particular, that's not going to get resolved this term and what its significance is. Well, it's hard to know, and one of the reasons we don't know is, you know, we can guess which cases were going to be five to four and are now four to four. Uh, there are three things that could happen with those cases. Uh, one is that uh, it could be held over for a new justice, and I think the Supreme Court will also be watching the Senate hearings to see if there's likely to be a justice in time to be able to hold re-argument in a reasonable time. So it's possible some of the cases will be held over. Some cases could be dismissed or otherwise disposed of on a 4-4 tie, which would leave the lower court ruling standing. And uh, uh, some cases, uh, uh, if Chief Justice Roberts can maneuver it, might be decided on narrow or technical grounds to put the issue off for another day. I expect we'll see more of that than you might expect. But some of the cases that um, could go that way, there's the Friedrichs case involving public labor unions where it was seen, Justice Scalia had actually perhaps changed his views on uh, that, the question of the Abood case and the question of whether you can uh, require payments from non-union members to public sector unions. So that one could divide. I also think uh, United States versus Texas involving the president's power in immigration could well divide uh, four to four. And we may have already seen a division four to four. I'll just point out something that you probably didn't hear much about over the weekend. The Supreme Court late on Friday night, I think it came at about 10 p.m., East Coast time, the Supreme Court declined to issue a stay in a North Carolina redistricting case, congressional redistricting case. The court doesn't give any reasons. It could just as likely have been a four to four or a zero to eight. We don't know. But already Justice Scalia's absence could be having an effect on the court. Ed, what about you? Well, I agree with much of what Rick said. I would just emphasize that I think it's uh, really highly un unrealistic under any scenario to expect that there would be a nominee confirmed and able to take part in re-argument this term to get cases decided this term. So basically, uh, any case in, uh, in which Justice Scalia would provide um, a dispositive fifth vote is, going to, is not going to be decided, um, except, as Rick su suggested, they find some narrower ground to do so. But it will either be affirmed by an equally divided vote or set for re-argument. Okay. When John Roberts had his confirmation hearing, he used a baseball metaphor to describe the role of a Supreme Court justice. He said, and I quote, it's my job to call balls and strikes and not to pitch or bat. Um, a liberal constitutional law professor at Stanford, Pamela Carlin, who clerked for Justice Blackmun, said that she thought that Roberts's description significantly understated the role of a Supreme Court justice. Picking up on the baseball metaphor, she said Supreme Court justices determine what the strike zone is. Do you think either of those is an accurate description of the role of a Supreme Court justice, or is there, or is there a better one? Well, I think there's some merit to um, what each has to say. I think I understand the Chief Justice's comment to really capture the obligation of impartiality. And I think it contrasts most sharply, not with what Pam Carlin said, but with Barack Obama's own empathy standard, the notion that 
Um, if there are really tough cases when you can't make up your mind, you indulge your own sense of empathy to decide what the Constitution means. That empathy standard is one that uh, his own two appointees to the Supreme Court purported to reject in very emphatic terms at their confirmation hearing. And I think uh, the Chief Justice's statement is best understood as counterposed to that. Obviously, uh, there are differences um, between uh, Supreme Court justices and baseball umpires, um, although they all dress in black. Um, <laughs> or maybe it's dark blue now, I guess, for some, for some umpires. But um, the, and, and, and I think um, it's not, look, there, there is a rule in the <coughs> baseball rules about what the strike zone is. Now, some uh, the umpires don't uh, apply that consistently. I'm actually more and more in favor of, uh, of uh, surprisingly for baseball traditionalists, in favor of, of computer strike zones to, 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 to avoid that. Um, but, but obviously beyond that, um, the, 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 the justices, unlike the umpires, have a great deal of authority in a whole host of areas to flesh out just what seeming rules mean. Um, and, and the strike zone is just, um, is just one example of that. Rick, what about your thoughts on the role in the scope of the role of Supreme Court justice. Well, I'm glad you asked it because I was worried I was going to agree with Ed the entire time. And so <laughs> we found something we disagree about. Um, uh, what I would say is that for kind of the ordinary case that is not politically charged, um, the justices applying eclectic methodologies often reach similar conclusions. There are a lot of cases that are unanimous or they're seven to two or they or they don't divide along ideological lines. That's maybe what we would think of as a kind of ordinary litigation at the Supreme Court. Uh, some bankruptcy cases, some tax cases, uh, cases where the stakes are not as high. But for the highest stakes cases, uh, the pattern is pretty simple. Whether you are an originalist or you are a living constitutionalist or whatever you call yourself, if you were a justice that was appointed by a Republican president, you were likely to side with what is widely seen as the conservative side, anti-union, uh, in favor of regulation of abortion, uh, against affirmative action. And if you are a, uh, a justice appointed by a Democratic president, uh, you are likely to have the opposite views on those things, regardless of what methodology uh, you uh, use. And so I think in those uh, uh, most uh, highly contentious cases, the justices' value judgments inevitably play into the results of cases. And so I think that we we talk about a, a strike zone or a computerized strike zone. I don't believe that the courts, justices, whether they think they are consciously or not, are applying consistently neutral principles. And, that, and I, I don't believe that they're deciding cases because they're trying to help the political party of the president that appointed them. But I do think they are chosen because they have a certain set of jurisprudential uh, commitments that make it very likely that they are going to be a reliable vote on those kinds of issues. And so they're all calling, think they're calling balls and strikes, but they see the strike zone very differently. Any yeah, if I, if I could, I, I, I want to express, uh, maybe add, add a friendly modification to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, the perspective of looking for liberal results and conservative results obscures the, the deeper issue, which admittedly can cut both ways in different instances, of whether the uh, justices are letting the democratic processes operate or are overriding them. And so, for example, if we take the issue of abortion or same-sex marriage or the death penalty or so many others, not all, I agree, but so many others, the position that Justice Scalia consistently took 
was not that the Constitution enabled him to impose his own policy preferences, not that the Constitution somehow forbids permissive abortion laws or forbids states from adopting same-sex marriage laws or, or forbids uh, states from abolishing the death penalty. Rather, it was that, that the Constitution leaves those issues to the people to decide. So I think that, um, now again, Rick can, can come up with examples um, that cut the other way, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but the, the big challenge in constitutional interpretation is to discern the line uh, between uh, when a justice may properly override democratic, democratic enactments, um, whether or not he, he agrees with those enactments, and when he may not. Um, and, and so I think that gets us a little deeper than simply looking at supposedly conservative or supposedly liberal results. Yeah, I, I guess I would just give two counterexamples. Would be Shelby County versus Holder, which was the case where the Justice Scalia was in a five-justice majority that overturned uh, the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that provided preclearance for jurisdictions that had um, a history of racial discrimination in voting. Uh, just uh, the, the, the um, talk about popu popular will, that that provision was uh, approved by the Senate on a 98 to 0 vote. Uh, uh, so I mean, talk about something that was very popular. And Justice Scalia rejected that and even uh, at oral arguments in the case said, you know, we shouldn't even accept things that are approved on a 98 to 0 vote. Uh, uh, and uh, called, um, he had called the uh, Voting Rights Act the perpetuation of racial entitlement. So I mean, I think that is one area, Citizens United is another, where I didn't think there was a lot of respect for democratic processes uh, in those kind of cases. I don't think, but th and that's just because Justice Scalia was brought up, I think you could say the same thing about the liberal justices. It's not a rap on conservative justices. I think that, I think all of the justices are result-oriented. Um, all of the justices are, I hate the term activist, activist when they want to be and restrained when they want to be. And uh, they're, uh, in these cases, the fact that people can predict through fantasy SCOTUS, if you've seen these websites or otherwise, <laughs> they, can they can pretty much predict where the justices are going to get end up without reading a single brief or knowing anything about originalist arguments or legislative history or any of these other kinds of things. That tells you that something else is going on besides neutrality. Well, you, since you brought up the term uh, judicial activism, Ed, this is something you have written about regularly for the National Review and other places. It's a feature about judicial activism this day, this year. Tell us your definition of judicial activism and if you'd give us an example of a judicial activist ruling. Sure. Well, first, like every political term, judicial activism is amenable to uh, different meanings. Uh, some people try to banish it from the public square on that basis, but you know, just as we use the terms conser conservative liberal, even though they can, people can mean different things by them, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a disqualification. Look, I use the term uh, judicial activism to mean the wrongful overriding of democratic enactments by the courts. Now, a lot of weight is obviously carried by the term wrongful, and the, the uh, invocation of uh, judicial activism invites an inquiry into what is the proper method of constitutional interpretation. So I acknowledge that, that, that the term itself does not offer a theory of constitutional interpretation. But by my lights, um, you know, a classic example of judicial activism is uh, Roe versus Wade, where the Supreme Court in one fell swoop uh, invalidated the abortion laws of all 50 states, deprived the American people of the uh, ability to legislate that difficult, contentious issue on their own uh, in their states in different ways, and um, as a result, as Justice Scalia pointed out in the Planned Parenthood versus uh, Casey dissent, really d disrupted and, 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 and uh, co-opted 
uh, the American political system for you know decades since in a way that um, has made the whole politics of this very ugly and I think um, very uh, damaging to how our system ought to operate. Rick, how about you? Well, I, I as, as I indicated in my in the last answer, I don't find the label judicial activism all that helpful. I do think that there are decisions that follow from precedent more than others, and I think we see justices strategically, for Chief Justice Roberts, for example, strategically moving the law in a slow way so as not to be accused of activism, take two steps, so before you overturn the Voting Rights Act, signal in a case three years before that you're going to do it, before you strike down the major components of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance, let's signal that you're going to do it. Um, I, you know, that's, these, these are just questions of strategy. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I, I just don't find that debate helpful. I think the question is, as Ed says in the um, Roe versus Wade and those kinds of cases, the question is, how does the, the justice looking at the text and the history and the evolution, this is where I think Ed gets off the train, the evolution of our understanding <laughs> and rights over 225 years, what is it where we need judicial protection of people's rights and when is it that we should leave things for the political process? The same thing about, uh, I think, in the same-sex marriage cases. And I think that is a question of a value judgment that perfectly uh, splits the justices along their ideological lines. Well, let right. me make a point about that, if I may, because, I mean, it, it, look, I'm not, I'm not going to contest or, or try to disprove Rick's proposition about all the justices supposedly acting ideologically. It's impossible for me to disprove that. I will say it's a logical fallacy, though, to think that the fact that the, that the court divides 5-4 on seemingly ideological terms, shows that both sides are acting politically. It, you would have the 5-4 divide if either 4 or 5 are acting politically. It doesn't show both sides. Of course, you also have uh, significant differences in judicial philosophy that um, may actually um, matter here. Um, so there's judicial philosophy that can be separate and above politics, obviously. For um, conservatives, uh, originalism, I think, is a philosophy that, that, that will dictate rather clear results in advance. And it should be no surprise that someone who um, believes in the philosophy of originalism would find some of these cases very, very easy. I haven't figured out in 30-plus uh, years exactly um, you know, what constraints there are on living constitutionalism. So I, I, I find it more difficult to, to uh, credit some sort of line between judicial philosophy and politics when the message of, of living constitutionalism seems to be that you, you know, consult your inner politician to decide what the, what the, uh, the, the climate of the age demands. But, um. Rick, let me ask you a, a one pointed question. <laughs> pointed question, you can, you can also comment, but other than, besides the term judicial activism, I want to throw out the term, what I'll call the sort of reaching out doctrine which I believe is something that you've talked about particularly, and what I mean by that is the court expanding the scope of a case that is handed to them. Um, and, and I think it would be useful if you might talk about that in the context of, of uh, campaign finance and Citizens United. Sure, well, I'll, I'll uh, respond to that and then I want to come back to this question about originalism. Um, so in Citizens United, which was, as I mentioned, the case that overturned uh, two earlier cases which had held that it did not violate the First Amendment to limit corporates, corporations to spending money in elections to money they would raise in a separate political action committee. That case started off as a very small case. Most of us thought it was going to lead to 
a victory for this small ideological corporation called Citizens United. And I even thought that was probably the right result to uh, expand uh, in that area. Um, but then uh, after the oral argument in that case, uh, the case was set for re-argument and uh, the uh, court specifically asked for briefing on the question of whether those earlier cases should be overruled. Uh, there was a very small way to have uh, decided that case without overturning those cases, but the Supreme Court reached out to do it. And what I found was most disturbing about that was Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court, which started out by saying, uh, we have been asked to uh, he did the same thing in Bush versus Gore, you know, our unsought responsibility. Uh, you know, these, the, the justices, and again, you're asking me about a conservative case. The justices reach out and, and decide these things. I think what's most interesting is a debate that's happening among conservatives, or that was happening. I know Ed, Ed has been debating, um, uh, his name Evan Burnick, uh, 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 and others who will call for judicial engagement, which is basically conservatives reaching out, and I think it's mostly about eminent domain and protecting uh, private property rights. If I look at who... who maybe maybe abolishing people. the New Deal altogether, maybe with the position they're advocating. But I do find the repackaging really interesting. And one thing I'll say about Ed is that he has been consistent in calling for judicial restraint, whether it's a conservative majority or uh, a uh, liberal majority, but, um, uh, uh, but not, not everyone. Uh, and I expect that the arguments for judicial minimalism that uh, people on the left have been making for the last 20 years are going to get more adherence if there is a President Clinton who appoints a Justice Scalia replacement. It's just going to be flipped. The well, wait a second. They'll get more adherence from the right. But, from but the right. They'll, yes, they'll, that's they'll, right lose, they'll lose yes, any adherence from the right, left. Exactly. They won't lose me because I've been calling okay, for okay. it consistently, I think. So check back in 10 years. But uh, uh, let's hope. Uh, but, I, but I think. Uh, but I just wanted to point, the, the originalism point and uh, the logical fallacy argument you made is so interesting to me because I think about this as a social scientist and I say, what can I observe? And what I can observe are the votes, right? I can count the votes and I could say, Justice Alito, certainly not an originalist, right? Didn't he have that line about uh, Justice Scalia wants to know what um, James Madison would have thought of violent video games? At an oral argument, he made this uh, point. Alito is not an originalist. Uh, Kennedy is not an originalist. Roberts is not an originalist. Uh, I mean, they, they dabble in originalism the same way that Stevens would, I think, completely for, uh, to, so he could hoist it upon Justice Scalia. Um, but, yet, but yet, the two originalists on the court, uh, and I believe that uh, Scalia and Thomas were pretty consistent in applying originalism, and the three non-originalists who are also conservatives all tend to come out the same way in most cases. There's not a lot of cases where they split. Well, I wish what you said were true about Justice Kennedy, but I think the history of the last 25 years is that in uh, more big cases than not, Justice Kennedy is with the liberals. But I, I, I would classify him, I, mean, I think we, have, we had a 414 court, if one, one wants to use crude ideological terms, four liberals, four conservatives, and then you have Kennedy in the middle. He's sometimes described as a moderate, but I like to say that's a bit like taking the highs and lows of a, of a manic depressive and calling him stable. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he has the most grandiose notion of judicial power and is ready to uh, wield it uh, in any direction. I think we found something else we agree upon. <laughs> I, I like to call him Hamlet, but it's the same. Uh, I have a lot more respect for Hamlet. <laughs> so, so you're the, the, the man you worked for some years ago, uh, Justice Scalia, once said that William Brennan, who served on the court from 1956 to 1990, was probably the most influential justice of the century. 
Justice Brennan, as many of you know, was an appointee of President Eisenhower. He became one of the liberal lions of the court. And among other things, he had a reputation, whether warranted or not, um, of being a great lobbyist with his colleagues, of being able to persuade people. So I was just going to ask, how, how important is the justices lobbying one another? And is, there, and is there a lot of it? And is it in writing? Is it in conversation? Well, Justice Brennan, uh, whom I met only briefly, was by all accounts a very charming man. Justice Scalia liked him a lot, uh, personally. Uh, Justice Brennan would explain to his clerks every year that, that the thing that mattered most at the Supreme Court was getting to five. Uh, and, you know, he really viewed it the way a uh, ward politician would rally up the votes. Um, I. My own sense is that my own belief is that's not a proper understanding of the judicial role. Uh, I, you know, I clerked 25 years ago. I can't really speak um, to what went on, you know, internally. But I don't think the, um, and who knows what's going on with the justices now. But I don't think that typically there'd be much, um, much lobbying. I mean. Uh, Sometimes, of course, clerks would work with clerks in other chambers to help them understand issues and see things a certain way. Uh, how often that happened, justice to justice, I don't know. But I, I think it was more like uh, having five, uh, excuse me, nine uh, very small law firms operating in the same building. But you've studied the court pretty closely. What do you think about I, that? I, but I, I did not clerk on the court, and I have no inside information. I, I, I do agree that they seem to act in silos. Um, there are stories, I think, back in Casey of uh, Kennedy and Souter, Souter um, and lobby and O'Connor lobbying Kennedy. I expect now that uh, Roberts is going to do whatever he can to try to deal with the four four cases in a way that most preserves the legitimacy of the court um, as an institution. I mean, one thing I think you could say about Roberts is that he cares about the Supreme Court as an institution. I think, and I think that more than any kind of liberal leanings explain his votes, for example, in the Obamacare cases. Um, so he may reach out, but you know, that's, that's just a guess of right. mine. So you just mentioned law clerks, and given that we've got a lot of law students here and in adjoining rooms and some watching on live stream, there may be somebody in this room or in the adjoining room who someday will be a Supreme Court law clerk. So tell us a little bit, if you will, without totally invading your personal experiences, what the role of a law clerk is and, and how much influence do they have? Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, both in the lower courts and at the Supreme Court, the role of the law clerk will vary a lot by, by who your boss is and what, what um, he or she expects of you, how the office is organized. But essentially, you're there to uh, analyze cases uh, from the beginning, help uh, guide the judge to the right result, uh, most most judges have the cl uh, clerk do some sort of uh, first draft. I think uh, I think almost all do that, and the one or two who don't, such as Judge Posner, I think would benefit greatly from from <laughs> getting, getting a little more help than they have. I think Rick might agree with this this, this point too. Uh, he's sort of notorious for his sloppiness. Um, I, um, I I I actually do recall how with Justice Scalia. You know, give him a draft, which is uh, intimidating to do, especially the first time. And he always managed to uh, take what he had and refashion it in a way that made it distinctively his. Sure, you could see how what you gave him carried over if he did a good job, but you know, all the uh, all the all the the brilliance, all the you know, great wording, 
uh, he was just just always had his mind just going all the time in, in, uh, in how, to, how to craft opinions. I would just uh, add about Justice Scalia's opinions that he gave an interview a few years ago, I think it was to New York Magazine, yes. where he uh, said that uh, he wrote his dissents for law students. And I can attest as a casebook editor that uh, when you have to whittle down a case, if you could include a Scalia opinion, it just makes it more bearable for the students to have to read through, as you know, <laughs> in the room, uh, read through you know, pages and pages. You know, it's, oh, it's a Souter opinion. Oh, there's going to, or it's Brian. There's going to be a 12-part test, and it's going to be. You know, it's like, it's like with 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 Scalia, you always knew you'd be entertained, infuriated, you'd be laughing. You know, I I did a study um, a few years ago and found that Justice Scalia was described uh, as sarcastic or caustic. Um, 30 times more than the next closest justice down. Yeah, sarcastic um, is the uh, liberal word for a conservative uh, who's funny. But <laughs> <laughs> Just, justice Thomas and Alito did not come close uh, in the, uh, so it, it, was, it was Scalia, Scalia was the outlier. Uh, and it, but, but he was funny. Uh, they did a study of uh, how often laughter appears in the transcripts and they'd often, yeah, Scalia was a, was a clown. I do think he was a larger than life personality at the oral arguments, if you have ever seen him. Uh, or heard him. It's going to be very interesting um, hearing the arguments today, hearing what uh, it's going to be like. I think a body that's uh, of nine people with so much power that works so closely together, anytime you upset the equilibrium, it's bound to have all kinds of effects that we can't see. And let me just add, it's gotten some attention recently, um, but for someone who is so vilified, Justice Scalia did an incredible job of forming friendships with people with whom he had deep ideological divides. And that may puzzle a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of us, myself included, aren't, you know, aren't, aren't that, that good at doing it. We tend in D.C. to be very polarized. You know, we all can uh, use sharp rhetoric. Obviously, the justice uh, uh, did as well. But I think he had this amazing capacity, and I think it was, uh, frankly, rooted in his uh, religious faith, to uh, see the, the, the best qualities of, of, of people uh, whom he liked and respected, and to understand that even though he would deeply disagree with them on, you know, judicial, matters of judicial philosophy, moral issues, things deeply important to him, that he could nonetheless appreciate who they were, you know, get along famously with them. His friendship with, uh, with Justice Ginsburg is the most prominent example. He also had, uh, you know, very strong, uh, very good relations with Justice Ginsburg, uh, Justice Kagan, uh, and others. So uh, I would hope um, that we all, and I include myself in this, certainly can, can learn um, a lesson from that. I'd like to ask a question about the, uh, the accessibility to the Supreme Court. Um, it's one of the three branches of government, but you know, we, we've, in recent years we've gotten to listen to oral arguments, but there's no televising of, of, uh, of Supreme Court proceedings. Uh, I'd like to know what you both think about the idea of televising Supreme Court proceedings, and is there some reason that you think that that branch of government is so different than the other two branches that people shouldn't be able to watch it. Well, the, the, the branch is, so, is, is not so different, say, from Congress. Members of Congress decide that it's in their political interest to be televised so they can have little clips that they show on their lo local news back home. Uh, yeah. uh, members of the Supreme Court, um, I think, ultimately think uh, in part that it's not in their interest. There's this sort of anonymity to, 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 the, to the job that I think they like. But beyond that, and I, I think this, and I think this is a, actually a, a serious factor, I think that they 
uh, fear that televised argument would dramatically change um, not just the behavior of, of justices, not just the behavior, be, behavior of those arguing in the courtroom, but the behavior of those in the audience who suddenly have you know, an additional incentive to, 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 to engage in some sort of um, big protest. So look, I respect uh, different views on this. I, I would say, uh, but I'm, I'm inclined to say, um, you know, we have much, many um, much bigger problems out there. We can uh, leave this as it is. The reality of the matter is that we live in a golden age of uh, transparency at the Supreme Court. Technology has made it so that we have uh, um, not just technology, Supreme Court decisions, have, uh, Supreme Court uh, uh, internal decisions have made it so that we have same-day access to um, full transcripts of uh, every argument. We have, I think, same-week access. I don't follow this that closely to audios. Friday afternoon. Of, 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 of all the opinions. You know, we have tons of reporters who are there. We have specialized websites that, you know, someone who really wants to go learn more about what was said can, can go to. <coughs> So uh, I don't think in the grand scheme of things um, the, that we're um, missing much by not having Supreme Court arguments televised, and I do think there is a serious downside risk of televising. You, Rick? I disagree with everything but one thing that I'd say. <laughs> I, I do worry about the risks of outbursts, but I, I think the Supreme Court is the, by far the least transparent institution uh, that is, has so much power. I think that it, it decides cases using legal jargon months after argument that people don't understand. They don't understand the implications. And anything we can do that can educate the public about what the court is doing should be out there. If you've ever watched the Ninth Circuit on YouTube or you've watched the Florida Supreme Court, as I have, um, uh, on, on television, it's not scintillating television. And, uh, but it's educational. And if you care about the issue, it should be there. Sure, they'll be made fun of on The Daily Show. But so what? They're, they're public officials doing public business. And it's just one uh, example of the lack of transparency. And the, uh, so it, when the court took this recent North Carolina redistricting case, nothing appeared on the docket for days. When the court issued its, opinion, its decision dividing four to four, or dividing zero to eight, or dividing three to five, we have no idea because the court doesn't tell us their votes. In all of what Professor Will Baud has called the shadow docket, where the court decides emergency cases, they never, even later, explain to us why they've reached their decisions. So I think uh, uh, um, their financial disclosures are inadequate. You know, Justice Scalia, when he passed away, was at the ranch of someone who had uh, a case that was pending before the Supreme Court last year. And if Last year, yes. Last year, right, not a current. Uh, um, uh, but if it's lodging, and again, I, this is, uh, uh, I'm sure this is not just Justice Scalia. This probably applies to many of the justices. If it's lodging, it doesn't have to be reported on the disclosure reports. I think the court is a terribly non-transparent institution that's doing really important work. And I, I don't care if it makes the justices uncomfortable to have to be on television. I'd like to just go back before we open up for questions to a sort of another question, big picture question about the role of the court. Um, Robert Jackson, who was a distinguished American, he was on the court from 1941 to 1954 after he'd been the Attorney General and Chief Prosecutor at Nuremberg, once said of the court, it's a great line I think, we are not final because we are infallible, but infallible only because we are final. What do you think he meant by that, and do you think he was suggesting that there needed to be some greater accountability for the court? Well, I hate that quote of Jackson's. <laughs> uh, Justice Scalia really admired Justice Jackson. Um, the fact of the matter is the court is not infallible. Uh, maybe, maybe he was invoking the idea that somehow needs to be 
treated as though it were infallible because it's final, but that also is, I, th I think, a serious falsehood. But look, we have this myth of judicial supremacy that, that suggests that the Constitution means whatever five justices say that it means. A lot of people think that this myth dates back to Marbury, but it's a gross misreading of Marbury. This, this, this myth was first prop, uh, promulgated by the Supreme Court in Cooper versus Aaron. Uh, it's deeply hostile to uh, the understanding uh, throughout our history. Abraham Lincoln did not say, oh, the Supreme Court has spoken in Dred Scott, so I must buy, abide by the, rationa the rationale of that opinion. Had he taken that position, he would never have signed into law uh, a, a, a later abolition of slavery in the federal territories that, that went headlong into Dred Scott. He would not have allowed his administration to issue passports and patents to, to free blacks, thus confirming them as citizens, as he did, and so on. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what he meant. I think it's a, a very bad quote from a very bright man. I'd add one last point about Justice Jackson that may bear a little bit on the Scalia vacancy. As you noted, uh, Justice Jackson went off to uh, Nuremberg for a year to, to be the uh, war crimes prosecutor there. And there was a controversy at the court at the time. Um, could the court uh, survive with just eight justices? And Felix Frankfurter said, of course. You know, the, the, the trivial inconvenience of having eight justices for a while is nothing. Um, we, we, he we, might have thought the court could have just survived with him. <laughs> <laughs> and it might well have. So. Uh, well, I would say that we have um, a very bad combination of two things. Life tenure for justices who are increasingly appointed because of their ideological views that line up with party views, and a very uh, difficult, if not impossible, task of amending the United States Constitution. If we could more easily amend the Constitution, as easily as we could amend the Constitution in California, which basically <laughs> takes $2 million to get something on the ballot, and then voters can vote on it, whether they like it or not. If we could actually amend the Constitution, then the Supreme Court wouldn't be so final. Or if justices had life ten, uh, didn't have life tenure but had maybe fixed 18-year terms, which Steve Calabresi of the Federal Society has proposed and I think is a great idea. And we rotated justice in every two years. So we'd say it is, it is a political institution, but there's going to be change and it's going to slowly reflect political views. If we had any one of those things so the court would not be final more of the time, I think we'd be better off. And I'm saying that whether we end up with a liberal Supreme Court now or continue with a conservative Supreme Court. I think the ability of the people to overturn the Supreme Court uh, is something that we deeply need, but we don't have because you need to get through the current polarized Congress with a two-thirds vote and then get three-quarters of the states to agree. That is, you know, pick anything besides term limits. It's hard to imagine getting through, um, you know, a vote of popular initiative in this country. Anything else? It's hard to imagine it even getting, getting out of a legislature. Well, I agree with much of what Rick says there. I, I believe the Constitution is too difficult to amend. Uh, I also think that that difficulty in amending it is what has led to some of the uh, activist decisions overriding limits on Congress's power. Um, I, I would just add one note. There, there are two ways to, uh, by which amendments can be proposed for ratification. The first, the one that's been used for um, every amendment so far, is for Congress to send it to the states. But there also is uh, the application of the states. I believe it requires two-thirds two of the states to make an application to Congress, at which time, as I read the Constitution, Congress is required to uh, issue this uh, proposal for a, a, a convention, a convention that would simply propose amendments, which would still need to be ratified by the three-fourths of the states. I think it's time to open it up for questions. I'll take some hands. Mandy? I have a question on the legitimacy of the court and how much this 
um, that possible appointment is going to affect if it's appointed by a liberal, will the American people just kind of view the court as a political movement now? And how is that in the court's responsibility to retain their legitimacy, or does that also rest on Congress? Well, I, all I can tell you is that public opinion about the court in the last 10 years has been going down. And I attribute that to the fact that we are, for the first time in recent memory, a court where all of the liberals are appointed by Democratic presidents and all of the conservatives are appointed by um, uh, Republican presidents. And so you can criticize the Republican Supreme Court or the Democratic Supreme Court. So I do worry about the court's legitimacy. I think that the justices worry about that. Um, Chief Justice Roberts recently gave a speech where he said, we're not a political institution, but I think they're increasingly going to be seen that way, whether they see themselves that way or not. So it would be a great solution then, I think you would agree, for President Obama to nominate a Miguel Estrada or <laughs> you know, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in order to, to, to break that perception. Look, I think another factor is that um, law schools for uh, two or three generations now have, have taught that law is nothing more than, than politics. Uh, indeed, that it can be nothing more than politics. Uh, again, a lot of this is dressed up in the language of the living constitution, but ultimately it just collapses into that notion that law is politics. So I think we're we're reaping what law schools have sown. It's our fault. <laughs> yeah, it's a special. I'm, I'm going to plead not guilty, but take the next question. Uh, yes, sir. Um, in Cheney, the U.S. District Court for District of Columbia, when the Sierra Club was trying to get Justice Scalia to recuse himself, uh, to force Vice President Cheney to release his visitor logs when discussing national energy policy, Justice Scalia refused to recuse himself, saying that when the court proceeds with eight justices, it raises the possibility that, by reason of the tie vote, it will find itself unable to resolve the significant legal issue presented by the case. And he goes on to say that even one unnecessary recusal impairs the functioning of the court. And so my question is, how is allowing a seat to be open for a year not analogous to a year's long unnecessary recusal? Okay, my recollection, which may be mistaken, is that you're extracting one snippet from an opinion in which he goes on to explain at length why he has no obligation to recuse. And the principle is that, that if, if, you, if, if you're not obligated to recuse, you're obligated not to recuse. Uh, sure, there's, there's some potential downside, um, uh, but I, I think uh, it's trivial in, in the grand scheme of things, and uh, I don't think that that snippet uh, captures the, the, the broader significance of his opinion, which I'll note um, many folks um, across the um, ideological spe spectrum uh, accept it as sound. I would just point out just another potential reform that would improve the court. Uh, I don't know how Ed uh, would react to this, which would be what we do at the California Supreme Court when there is a recusal um, or an absence for some other reason is we pick another justice at random, uh, a, a, court of appeal, a court of appeal justice at random to serve on the court. If we could actually assure a random draw I think that would be, uh, well, but, and Judge Reinhardt again, uh, how did it happen? Uh, and, 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 I, and I say that because there have been some controversies over random draws in both circuit courts and also on three judge courts, and now there are claims that um, Chief Justice Roberts has been stacking the FISA court with Republicans, there's all kinds of, if we could assure that it was truly random, uh, we'll give the th same people who run Powerball would be the ones who would pick, uh, then, uh, then, then, we, then we could fill those vacancies and I, you know, uh, that, that may, uh, or recusals in those cases. I don't know how you feel about something like that. I haven't given it serious thought. I mean, it, it, um, it has some attractions. Uh, obviously, as you pointed out, it has a random element to it as well, but um, 
you know, they're, they're, they're worse ideas. <laughs> and I've articulated many of them already. <laughs> Next question. <coughs> yes, uh, You mentioned uh, Justice Scalia's uh, deep religious uh, views and feelings. And I wonder, uh, do, you, do you think that the justices don't bring that into their view of the Constitution's textual meaning, their view of what originalism is? Isn't that all coming from they come from a deep uh, religious background. Isn't that kind of a slant on their view? Well, I think I can prove that it doesn't, in fact. Look, Justice Scalia said that the one obligation that, that his religious beliefs imposed on him as a judge was, you know, do not lie. Uh, look, take, take Roe versus Wade. If you assume that Justice Scalia was ardently pro-life, how strange that he would take the position that the Constitution leaves this matter to the political processes to be decided one way or another. There are plenty of folks out there um, who are developing this notion that that person in the 14th Amendment ought to be construed to, 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 to protect the unborn. He never took that position. Likewise on marriage, likewise on so many other things. Now look, I'm not going to claim that anyone is um, fully above the danger of indulging um, his own um, strongly held views. Um, there are measures to take against that. But the notion that, 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 um, that you know, he was uh, imposing Catholic morality uh, from the court, I think is demonstrably false. Next, is Bob. Uh, I was one of the people who say that we should defer the, uh, the nomination of a new Supreme Court justice to let the people decide in a presidential election and the new Senate. I've never heard anybody talk about whether that view would alter the standards for confirmation of a new justice were, were that decision to be deferred to a new president and a new, t new senate. Are they implying that somehow there should be a more lenient standard once his people have spoken and a, and a president and a new senate is, is selected or what or, do, or is it just the same standards? Well, this, this, the, the basic message here is the same one that the New York Times set forth in an editorial in, in, in 2008. Um, I think, uh, look, uh, I, think the, I don't think it, it implies anything at all about the, um, the standard that the, the next Senate ought to um, apply. Again, the reality of it is, and I was hoping we could get more, more into this, but, um, the, you know, the, the, again, the, 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 the reality is when you have an, an opposite party Senate, it has tremendous power um, over the confirmation process, and it's going to exert that power uh, and, and we, you know, we haven't seen that, that situation in decades. Um, we're going to see it now. And I agree with Rick that if the situation were reversed, things would be pretty much the opposite way, except I hope there wouldn't be conservatives making the stupid argument that somehow opposing, um, say, saying you're not going to confirm a nominee is denying the right of the president to make a nomination. I mean, that's a, that's a non sequitur. We have the clash of, of branches that the Constitution contemplates. Uh, um, let me just make a prediction uh, that we can go back to this tape in a few months and see if I'm wrong. <laughs> that um, if uh, Hillary Clinton becomes president and there is a, um, there has been no filling of the vacancy of whoever President Obama uh, has nominated, and it's a Democratic Senate, but it is a Democratic Senate uh, that is not a filibuster-proof majority, I think Democrats will kill the filibuster for uh, Supreme Court nominations. That's and, and that will be the end. And I think Republicans would do the same thing, but it's less, li less likely that we'd end up with a Republican president and a 
and, a, and, a, and a democratic Congress. So I, I agree with you, Rick, um, but I want to emphasize that it is nonetheless the majority control of the Senate that is a huge lever, even in the absence of, of the majority using the filibuster authority of 41 of its members. But look, the Democrats were, were quite clear, the New York Times reported on this back in November 2013, when they went nuclear and abolished the, the filibuster for lower court uh, judicial nominations and executive branch nominations. They said, the New York Times reported, that they did not do it for Supreme Court nominations because the abortion groups were afraid that eliminating the, the, the filibuster would make it easier for a Republican president to uh, get anti-Roe nominees confirmed. Of course, um, if, they have, if they're in the moment and they have a situation where they don't have to worry about that, and they need, they, they, they need to abolish the filibuster, of course it will happen right away. And I think everyone uh, on both sides recognizes that. And if Republicans uh, need to do so in order to get a good, a good nominee confirmed, I think you'll see that disappearing as well. So I, I, think, I think that's the big change that we're going to see. Is we're going to be see, and, and I, even if, and I think it's very unlikely that Obama gets a nominee through who actually gets a vote and gets confirmed. Even if that happens, I think there will be more nominees over the next four to eight years. And whoever is in charge, if they need to get rid of the filibuster to get somebody through, they're going to. Uh, Justice Alito had 42 votes against him, but the Democrats didn't filibuster. Well, they did and filibuster unsuccessfully. They got 25 well, votes. Yeah. Barack Obama, you know, uh, uh, voted against cloture. And look, I, look, I agree with what you're saying. I just think you're overstating its importance. The filibuster histor uh, has, is, is not a very powerful tool against Supreme Court nominees because filibustering senators are likely to face a high political price. It's a lot easier to filibuster lower court nominees because who's ever heard of Miguel Estrada, for example? That stuff doesn't get attention. I, I, I think that the, 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 the having majority control of the Senate is a far more powerful club than, all, than, than whatever incremental advantage the filibuster gives you. And if you're going to get confirmations proceeding expeditiously, if you decide that that's what you want, and I'm sure for most of us that's going to, you know, our own preference will depend whether it's a, a president we like or one we don't, what you want to look for is to have same party control in the Senate. I think you've got the final question because we're close um, to one. My question concerns the role of the Supreme Court in encouraging civility in the legal profession. Um, one thing that I've noted at least is the tone in some opinions in recent years has, it's not as civil as it has been in the past or could, as civil as it could be. Do you think that the justices have a responsibility to, to control the tone and how they write their opinions? Uh, I would say the much higher obligation is to write um, uh, coherent opinions, uh, and, and, and when justices fail to do that, when they write idiocies, um, I can entirely understand uh, uh, other justices calling out those idiocies. Uh, I, I take a contrary view. I think that you can respectfully disagree and not say that if I had to sign this opinion, I would put my head in a bag, which is what Justice Scalia had said in one of his opinions. Uh, I know that the dean feels more strongly about this than I do, that uh, that uh, this is causing law students and lawyers to write in a less civil way. And, you know, I, I think I, I would rather look not to Justice Scalia's writings, but to his personal friendships and relationships that uh, Ed talked about as the model that we want of civility across the aisle. I regret to say that I have to call this to an end because students have to go off to class. Thank you both very much.
Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.